When you're cleaning a delicate item, the best thing is to use a very soft brush and you very gently, with a sweeping motion, clean the dust off and have a vacuum cleaner nozzle right next to the brush so that it's not anywhere near the object. And make sure that you've got gauze over the nozzle so that if any bits do flake off, then you can catch them and they don't disappear up into the vacuum cleaner. If they're on open display so that they're getting dust on them, they are cleaned every day. Whereas if they're in a showcase, that protects them from getting dust. And so we tend to only have to clean those about once a year. What's a joy to clean are some of the big trains in the museum, especially in Making the Modern World. There's a lovely green one and it's all curves and smooth and it's just very easy and pleasurable to clean it. In the medicine galleries, there's a type of lorry and that's got a very delicate surface and many, many hours were spent making sure that it was cleaned. Some objects can take up to you know, 50 hours in order to get it up to exhibition standard. Hello, I'm Nihal Arthanaika and this is a brief history of stuff. Here, you're going to hear fascinating stories about the ordinary objects around you. That's what this podcast was designed for. And all of these objects are inspired by historic items from the Science Museum Group Collection. So, firstly, Kate, great to meet you. Great to meet your vacuum cleaner. There's a sentence I never thought I'd hear myself saying out loud in public. There you go. Hello, I'm Kate Perks. My job title is Senior Collections Care Conservator, and I care for the collection at the Science Museum. So what does that mean? You, 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 you kind of give them a little good night and smile at them and stroke them and hug them when they need hugging? What does this mean, that you care for them? <laughs> so there are different elements to do with caring for objects. So there's a the sort of physical, you know, cleaning them, dusting them, that kind of thing, and also making sure that they're in a nice environment so that it's a nice temperature and it's not too hot, it's not too cold, and the relative humidity, it's not too dry, it's not too damp. I have various things that I can check to make sure that they're doing well. And part of making sure that these objects are good is to make sure that the dust is kept off them and they're nice and clean. So the Conservation assistants, when they're dusting the objects, they use sort of microfiber cloths and things like that. And we always dry dust everything. So they do that. And then they use the vacuum cleaners to clean the dust off their microfiber cloths. So they don't use the vacuum cleaners on the objects, but they use it to clean their tools. We have four conservation assistants and their job is... Every single day during the week, they clean all the objects that are on open display just to make sure everything keeps looking lovely for our visitors. Yes, who we're all looking forward to welcoming back into the Science Museum group as soon as possible. Oh, we can't wait. We've missed them. Today, 
We're also joined by Laura Humphreys. Now, Laura works at the National Collection Centre, has written a book about housework and is, I am reliably informed, the world's only carpet sweeper enthusiast. Can't wait to find out more about that. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nihal. I sound like a real laugh, don't I? <laughs> it's, it is. Look, I, look. You, you would have heard this joke a million times, but some people, it's all about the tone. You can say, my job sucks, or you can say, my job sucks. And uh, it's about the tone. And the tone about cleaning, vacuum cleaners, is a positive one because we need them, don't we, Laura? Yeah, we absolutely do. I think you can learn an awful lot about a person from how they do their housework and what's important to them about that. So how you go about it, it tells you a lot about your personality, but also how it changes over time. It can tell us a lot about what home means to people and what a home looked like in the 18th century, 19th century, what it might look like in the future. Housework is something that we all have to do every day, even if we hate it, even if we do as little as we can. It's something that everybody has to do. So where does our story of the vacuum cleaner begin? So I think it definitely begins at home, but it starts with a broom, which is one of the most basic, simple domestic tools that you can have. And for thousands of years, a broom was enough and, you know, still works. It's um, still a piece of technology that most people have in their house. But then you get sort of an in-between step, which is a carpet sweeper, and that starts to pick dirt up and put it into a receptacle. A lot of people remember it even now from like their grandma's house. And basically, the design has not changed in 150 years. It's a box that gathers dust under a hood on wheels on a broom handle. And they're made of plastic now, but they used to be made of wood. It really is one of those things that changes how your house looks. It changes how housework is done. And then you move on to the vacuum cleaner and it sort of transforms how we clean, particularly carpets in houses. And um, it starts to change the way houses look as well. So carpet sweepers and vacuum cleaners lead to us being able to have fitted carpets in not fabulously wealthy houses, for example. And one of the objects on open display that Kate and her team are now responsible for cleaning is a massive horse-drawn vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Sorry, did you just say the words horse-drawn and vacuum cleaner in the same sentence? I did indeed. The first ones were quite a big deal to have to bring to your house or to your business. And there's one in the Science Museum that's one of the Booth Company's vacuum cleaners. So Hubert Cecil Booth was the man that sort of brings the vacuum cleaners to the masses. But when he does, it's huge. It's the size of like a, a modern transit van. So what was he known for before? So he designed lots of things, actually. He was an engineer and he did things like Ferris wheels. But then he went to a demonstration, or so his story goes, of somebody that had designed a machine to clean up dirt by blowing it away, so like a leaf blower. And he said, well, what if it sucked the dirt into a box or something? And the guy who was doing the demonstration said, that's impossible. And then... Booth goes away and he sort of tests it. Supposedly, he nearly choked when he was testing out sucking up the dirt using a handkerchief himself. (laughs) He's like, well, this would work. And that's what leads him to sort of ultimately becoming sort of the king of the vacuum cleaner. And then these huge machines can be hired. It's bright red. This is a really eye-catching piece of machinery. And then it's got these huge snaking hoses that come out of the machine and go in through the doors and the windows of a house or a shop. or So it's a really big event and it's sort of advertising itself. They put glass 
panels into the machinery so people could see the dirt being sucked up, a bit like a, a modern vacuum cleaner where you can see the cylinders. And people even had parties to see that this was going on. You know, they had like vacuum cleaner tea parties. I'm not sure if that was just a marketing ploy because Booth was definitely a canny businessman. It went to the Crystal Palace or a version of the machine went to the Crystal Palace and it took 20 odd tons of dust out after um, an outbreak of illness in the Crystal Palace off the iron girders. They used in palaces, they used the very, very wealthy houses. There's actually one in Elton Palace in London which survives, and that's the British Vacuum Cleaner Company put that in, which was Booth's Vacuum Cleaner Company. And it's a centralised vacuum cleaner. So there's the motor and the sort of dust receptacle is down in the basement of Elton Palace. And then there's an attachment in every room that you sort of plug the vacuum cleaner into and it all gets pulled in centrally, which is really, really cool. If like me, you're a housework nerd. It's awesome. What about the idea of spring cleaning, Laura? Yes. So that's quite a big thing for the Victorians in a way that we don't understand now. Although I actually think there's something quite attractive about the idea of leaving somebody else to clean your house top to toe and going on holiday in sort of domestic advice books and in magazines, they would suggest that you go on a seaside holiday, also a very newfangled thing at the time, while your servants were left at home to clean the house from top to bottom. It was a huge upheaval, particularly in cities, so like London, Birmingham, Cardiff, Newcastle, these newly industrialised cities have got suburban railways, they've actually got factories quite close into the cities. So the dirt is absolutely unbelievable. And they actually say in a lot of the advice books in the city homes that you should be doing a spring clean twice a year, actually, because it's so filthy. How many books have been written on this subject of housework? Oh, I couldn't begin to guess. Hundreds. There's hundreds of cookbooks alone and they really start to vary. But the cookbooks as we know it, they start to be set down in the late 19th century when you get Beaton's Book of Household Management. That's mostly a cookbook. But the household management bit's important because actually cookbooks have got recipes for cleaning supplies and how to use your vacuum cleaner and where you should get your carpet sweepers from as well. So they're much more holistic books, actually, that we don't get so much of anymore. Although it's probably been replaced by things like YouTubers, people like Mrs. Hinch, Marie Kondo, that sort of thing. That starts to happen in magazines like Judy's Guide to Domestic Science or The Lady is another one still going, of course, and they still have an agency to hire your domestic workers. They've actually restarted that in recent years, I think about three years ago, and they started out in 1885. So there was social change and a sign of social mobility if you had this technology in your house? So housework is designed to be hidden even in sort of the big houses, like if you go and see a Downton Abbey-esque big country house, you've got the green baize door that the servants and the service parts of the house are hidden behind. And now, you know, everybody hides a lot of their domestic labour and their housework behind cupboard doors. It's not out for guests to see. But actually, there have always been status symbols in domestic technology as well. So whether it's having the most up-to-date piece of technology so something like a vacuum cleaner at one point was really really cutting edge now we a lot of people have a really beautiful looking kitchen aid or a kenwood chef out on their unit even the iconic sort of early 2000s dyson with the big yellow 
cylinders inside even that they sort of put in the technology of the vacuum cleaner on display and that was a bit of a status symbol how much has the basic technology that exists in booth's machine changed to the basic technology you would see in a basic vacuum cleaner of today it hasn't really I'm sure there's a million engineers who are screaming at me for saying that, but it sucks up the dirt, it puts it into a receptacle, the receptacle needs emptying, whether it's a centralised vacuum cleaner or it's a handheld or it's a stack vacuum cleaner, it doesn't matter, they all work to the basic principle. Probably the biggest way that vacuum cleaners have changed is that they've gotten smaller and then also We've got smart technology as well now, so you can get robotic vacuum cleaners that will quite happily go off and do the job themselves. But they are still just sucking up dirt into a box that you're going to have to empty. Now, I know you said that Booth was a marketing genius, but growing up, I never said to my mum, oh, you know, I need to get out the Boother to go and clean the living room, not that I did much housework. I'm sorry, I grew up in the 70s. But one thing I did say, which became a verb really, is Hoover. How did they manage to change their product into becoming, you know, the kind of Google today? Yeah, exactly. Well, Hoover, again, is another company that really markets itself well. It's an American company. Hoover makes affordable machines and they make quite visually appealing machines as well. So they really start to make domestic scale, household scale machines look good and look appealing and be sort of a viable gift that you might give to any good housewife in the perfect ideal home. So Hoover really get a grip on that domestic market, particularly when in a period for certainly for America and increasingly for Britain as the 20th century goes on, there's less and less domestic servants working in British houses as society changes. And as more employment opportunities open up for women, there's far fewer people are willing to do that job. So that's when you really get a boom in machines that are small enough and easy enough for anybody to use in a house. Anyone that's ever sort of come into London through Greenford, coming into London on the West Way will have seen the Hoover factory, which is just this absolutely gorgeous Art Deco temple. They used to build and test all models of Hoovers there. There's some really wonderful historic photos of vacuum cleaners being tested at the Hoover factory. And they've got sort of a treadmill underneath the Hoovers of carpet, which is just winding around as they're being tested. And that building survives and it's still got the Hoover building written on it. It really is a fantastic piece of design. And again, it sort of it speaks to how Hoover got the design element right. So you get things like the Hoover Constellation, which we have one of those in the Science Museum collection. This sort of beautiful space age 1950s vacuum cleaner, which is like a perfect sphere. So it's a good example of domestic technology being quite aspirational, being a status symbol and not being hidden away anymore. It's like this is actually really fancy and it's really cool and you want to get it out and show people rather than sort of hiding all your domestic tech in a cupboard. But William Hoover didn't invent the Hoover, did he? No, he didn't. So again, another great inventor, James Spangler, sold his idea to William Hoover and then Hoover's I know what a brilliant name I know it's a shame isn't it that we went with Hoover and not the Spangler it is 
the Spangler. Yeah, love it. Oh my gosh. I have a particular affinity for this guy because he's an asthmatic person and I am too and vacuum cleaners have been transformational for anybody with breathing difficulties so I really like that he was the inventor of the hoover as it came to be so this electric sort of cleaner on a broomstick if you like it's that classic design of a bag hanging off a pole that's what he gives to hoover or sells to hoover and then that's what hoover takes forward so again we've got another really savvy businessman who recognizes a good invention a bit like booth but the american version so they sort of really take off around the turn of the 20th century american innovation is a big part of the story of domestic technology particularly in britain and europe there were definitely and are definitely british and european companies as well and people do tend to think of america and sort of the futuristic homes of the 1950s where it's sort of a high domestic period in america but it actually starts much earlier so going back to those carpet sweepers you sort of start with an american innovation and it's the bissell company that are mass producing these glamorously advertised carpet sweepers and they've all got american names like the grand rapids from michigan But then there's like a turn towards buying British and being patriotic. But of course, this is also a time of high imperialism in Britain. So you've got things like the Eubank Empire, and it's got loads of imperial imagery and flags on it. So you've got people displaying their patriotism by buying British. That's that's happening 100 years before we sort of recognize people starting to buy newfangled American stuff. Housework doesn't happen in isolation from the world around it, and it tells us a lot about the world around it at a particular time as well. So as well as growing up alongside the beginning of print advertising and seeing lots of advertising tropes, it's also in an era of high imperialism in Britain. Domestic technology is sort of reaching new heights, and they're both reflecting each other. Another Victorian company is Imperial Leather, famous makers of soap. You get a lot of advertising around soap in the 19th century, which is really playing on racist imagery and a lot of washing brown and black skin to uh, white in those soap adverts and things that are, they're just slapping the word imperial on lots of things as well. It really comes across that imperialism is seen as this cleansing force in the British eye. But then also you get people talking about the home as a battleground. So it's going both ways as well. You know, you're fighting against dirt all the time and that still crops up actually. There's definitely lots of politics in housework if you look a little bit closer. And from the very onset, has there been essentially sexism attached to this? You see that from the advertising as well. So in the second part of the 19th century, you see lots of smiling maids in beautifully clean uniforms who are just having the best time they've ever had where obviously the reality is is usually not that and we still get that today you know you get a woman who's in sort of a crisp white shirt and light jeans who's just having the time of her life using a vacuum cleaner in the kitchen and the dogs playing it's just not true it's not how it happens but that's how people sell domestic technology and they're always selling it to women as well particularly in the early to mid 20th century you get selling to men to buy as a gift for their wives like make her day buy her a hoover that sort of really painful trope appears quite early on housework has been for a very long time and largely remains a really gendered activity. 
a huge amount of manual work we have less of now. But we still spend a comparable amount of time on domestic work. Studies have shown that the time that we spend, we were promised that it would be saved and we could do particularly women, could go and do all these fabulous things instead of spending all their time on domestic labour. But what actually happens is standards get higher and expectations raise and people end up doing the same sort of amount of work. And by people, I mean, it's usually women that are doing that same huge amount of work to a higher standard. Why do you think it is, and this is really interesting, that with all this technology, that actually we're spending about the same time on household chores that we were a century ago. So with better technology, and this happens across a lot of different technologies, but it's particularly important when you're looking at the history of domestic tech, with better technology comes higher standards. So a washing machine, for example, a modern washing machine can do a much, much better job than hand washing in with soap and water for many things. But we now expect everybody to turn up to work or social functions in spotlessly clean clothes, for example, and they should be ironed and you should look presentable. So there's different standards. And I think that's one of the things that really drives us still spending a huge amount of time on housework. That's something that's happened in the last year. Increasingly, studies are coming out over the course of the pandemic that although lots of people are working from home, lots of children are being schooled at home, the cooking, cleaning, childcare burden of the pandemic is falling increasingly to women, particularly in heterosexual households. That's still the division of labour in 2020, 2021. I think as much as I've sort of devoted a lot of my academic life to housework and have written a book about it, housework is fundamentally a bit rubbish and it's always going to be a bit of a hard job that we're always going to have to put some work into. But there is sort of new, exciting technology that can improve it. Again, it'll probably come along with improving standards and we'll still be doing just as much work, except we'll be programming the Android vacuum cleaner instead of actually running the vacuum cleaner around ourselves. But I think that smart technology is probably one of the most interesting things that's happened to domestic tech in the last hundred years or so, because we're now connecting all of our domestic technology to the internet, getting it to do things automatically, controlling it with our phones. I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that develops. I also think it's going to be really interesting to see how people decide to hack domestic tech as well. <laughs> I think that could be interesting slash terrifying. It could be the beginning of the robot apocalypse. <laughs> um, Kate, what has uh, intrigued you most about what Laura has said today? I think what's going to happen in the future, I think that's going to be, that's what I find most interesting. If you see how I know new technologies have changed, like the, the phone, for instance, and now we've got the smartphone and how everybody has one, how are we going to change the way we clean our houses? I think that'd be really interesting. Yes, and also a much more equitable share of labour in that process. Definitely. That's the dream. It is. It is. Laura and Kate, thank you so much. That was fascinating. And I cannot wait when I get back to the Science Museum to go and see Cecil Booth's giant horse-drawn vacuum cleaner. It's a sight to behold. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has. It's been great. 
Brief History of Stuff is a Story Things and Science Museum group production. Each episode features a story inspired by incredible items from the Science Museum group collection. The collection contains more than seven million items which illustrate the impact of science, technology, engineering and medicine on all our lives. Now if you'd like to discover more stories about the everyday objects around you including more about the history behind your vacuum cleaner then visit sciencemuseum.org.uk and search for everyday technology. Thanks to our guest Kate Perks from the Science Museum and to Laura Humphreys from the National Collections Centre for taking part in this episode. Series producer is Will Stanley and executive producer is Hugh Gary. The script editor is Ian Stedman. Audio editor is Kenya Scarlett and research for this episode was by none other than Laura Humphreys. We would like to thank everyone at the Science Museum Group who made this podcast possible. Now, if you like A Brief History of Stuff, we would be over the moon if you would tell your friends and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts to help others discover these fascinating stories. Remember, next time you are in a social situation, maybe a wedding or a birthday party, you can regale them with the history of the vacuum cleaner. Thank you for listening, and I hope we've inspired you to wonder a little more about the remarkable stuff around you. <laughs>